Welcome to Kibi on Liberty. Adam, good to see you. Nice to meet you. So I want to give people a little bit of context for this conversation. We are booth mates, literally, next to each other at Freedom Fest in Memphis, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. And you and I were having a chat about, about what you're up to. And I'm like, let's, let's just hold this for a second <laughs> and, and let's, let's do it on camera. So, so welcome. And I'd love to know, why. first of all, why you're at Freedom Fest. And I know that gets into your broader story. Well, um, you know, I'm, I'm at Freedom Fest actually because they invited me. Uh, they invited me, offered me a booth, and I've always been someone who's talked about personal responsibility, liberty, and freedom, um, having the right to speak freely, especially. You know, I started Wrong Speak to advocate for free speech um, and have the right to actually say how you feel, even if it pisses people off. Um, and, and I think it got their attention, and so they invited me to come out, happily accepted, and that's, that's the quick story as far as yeah. why I'm here. And, and talk about Wrong Speak Media so people know what that is. Yeah, Wrong Speak Publishing is, it was something that just started off as an opinion-based uh, blogging platform where we advocate for regular people, anybody, to submit articles, um, just saying how they feel about whatever topic. You know, we weren't trying to chase news stories or anything like that. It could be personal, politics, childcare, God, whatever they want. Um, but just giving them a platform to be heard. Uh, you know, for about how they feel. Um, it's expanded, so we're getting more and more people to submit. Uh, we, you know, we usually have a backlog of people, uh, of articles waiting to be published, which is a great thing. That means that people like having that opportunity. And we just started getting into news, so now I have a few journalists on staff who are chasing news stories that people aren't talking about. Uh, they're not chasing clicks or anything like that. You know, we're discussing, like, well, what do you want to, you know, do a deep dive on? Oh, I want to do a deep dive on this. Then let's do this. You know, so it's more meaningful for them as well uh, from the journalist aspect, which is something I didn't realize was lacking. A lot of journalists are doing grunt work, you know, talking about the same topics over and over. And they know that there's something really important that's going on that a lot of people aren't talking about. Yeah. It's fascinating to me. I I love the, the name of your company, and it's also just sort of crazy and fascinating to imagine that the conversations that you're talking about right now, mm-hmm. which are precisely what weaves human society together, mm-hmm. is these sort of real conversations where we, we work through our differences and we, we, we blurt out loud the things that we're thinking about. <laughs> and now, yeah. that, now that's wrong speak. Exactly. Why? Why, why is it so difficult to to do these things that used to be just a normal part of, of being an American? That's a really good question. I think it's because, I think COVID was a big part of it and Trump was a big part of it as well. I think with Trump, they made it a very emotional thing. And I think for a lot of people who weren't into politics, because I was into politics before, before Trump, and there was a way you kind of saw things and you could discuss it and you didn't have to agree with your neighbor or anything like that. But they they went into hyperdrive about good versus evil so that whoever's opposite of you is evil and they have evil intent. And on top of that, the people who weren't used to politics turned it into sport. 
So I'm rooting for my team. Yeah. It, it, it just put it on hyperdrive. I mean, it's always existed because we're group oriented, but it just went an extra level and they don't have the reference, you know, prior to Trump or prior, you know, to, to previous years, like someone like myself does. So I never really saw it like that. Um, while, you know, my previously I was a Democrat, I never hated Republicans like that. I didn't, you know, I didn't agree with them, um, or at least what I thought. I didn't agree with them until I started realizing that I was being fed BS. Um, but it was more of, it was more cordial. I kind of felt like it was yeah. like, you know, we just disagree. I didn't think they were evil. Yeah. But I, you just started seeing it hype up, hype up. But I think the pandemic really put people in a position where there was nothing else. Uh, I think about my coworker because I was working in IT at the time. My coworker every day would come in and complain about the Giants, complain about the Yankees, you know. And then the pandemic happened, and then he's looking at CDC numbers yeah. every day, like it was sport. And then he's looking at, did you see what the Democrats are doing? Yeah. Like it was sport. And until the pandemic started to die off and sports started to come back, then he went back to sports. And he just became like a symbol for me. Like, this is what's happening for a lot of people. They cut out all of entertainment, all distractions, and it was only politics and COVID. And it, and it just made people more emotional. And it, and it just made things um, unstable. It, I mean, I, I guess it feels like it really ramped up. I mean, COVID, I agree 100%. And, and I was kind of shocked at how inhumane we became towards each other during COVID absolutely, and, and the callous nature of, uh, I mean, I, I have an opinion about this. I think, I think lockdowns created haves and have nots where, you know, working folks were devastated and the laptop class sort of judged them from a high in their, in, in the, in the safety of their homes. Right. But, but it, it was the same dynamic, um, when, when Trump came on the scene and, and I, I suspect something was building before that where it became more, more, um, us versus them. Yeah. You're either on my team or you're, or you're literally evil. And I, I think about this in the context, um, and this I, th I think is part of your story, but uh, if you talk to the, the leadership of Black Lives Matter, you're either an anti-fascist, and I'm, I'm confusing organizations here, but it's, there's a similar ideology between the anti-fascist and, and BLM because they were, they were sort of pro-Marxist, right? Right. Explicitly. And if you weren't with their Marxist agenda, you were a fascist right. or a racist or a fascist, racist, whatever <laughs> it was. And there, there was no room for anything else. And, and, and maybe it started there. I'm not sure. I don't, I don't think it started there. But I think, um, you know, we look at something like DEI, for example. And George Floyd was the other, like, big mark in, in time that really transported everything into craziness. Yeah. Um, and that's, I started writing the book a couple months after that because while everything was building, it just exploded with George Floyd and it became this narrative of this is America, right? George Floyd is America, just beating down people. Um, and, and it was just something that I just thought was so egregious to say that uh, white people everywhere are just like Derek Chauvin just waiting to kill somebody. Um, or that I'm always in fear of dying by the hands of a cop or that, you know, thousands of black men are dying by the hands of cop unarmed. You know, it was just things like that uh, became so pervasive. Uh, I've, I've met so many people in the past couple of years from different places 
uh, black people and like I, I met someone from Utah, a black person, one of the few, very few. All of a sudden, all these white people are saying, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, what are you sorry for? I don't even understand. They just felt like they had to atone for something and they bought this narrative and they're so confused. But then what was even crazier is that when they say you have nothing to apologize for, they got upset with them that yeah. they wouldn't let them atone for their sins. And it was just, it's something that was so um, very religious in, in, in a in Yeah, a I was going to say there's a re religiosity yeah. to, to sort of anti-racism. Um, yeah. And, and owning your, your white guilt. Exactly. Um, that you were apparently born with. It's, it's nothing you did. It's just who you are. Right. And I've I tried to explain to people, like, you know, we hear the term white supremacy. Uh, you know, this is white supremacy. That, that's white supremacy. But the way I try to explain to people, it's similar to saying that white supremacy is um, original sin. If you see it in that way, then it kind of makes sense. So when you say that Larry Elder is the black face of white supremacy, they're not saying that he is white or anything like that. They're saying that he is a man of sin. Yeah. And if you start seeing in that direction, ignore the white part. They're talking about that it's sin. Then that's the religious part. And that's literally how they treat it. So I can, I can see both sides to it. A regular person who's not part of the cult says, what does that even mean? How is it? But for someone who, who's understood the cult speak, uh, you know, the, the language that the Marxists are using, I get what they're trying to say and they're trying to do. They're wrong, but I understand the translation. If you're watching this show, you're probably wondering, is there a way I can support liberty and improve my life at the same time? Well, there is. Pack Crest Botanicals is a libertarian-owned company that makes botanical CBD products. I started using CBD oil to help me when I'm trying to sleep and my three annoying cats won't leave me alone. Now I can just ignore them for a solid eight hours and wake up feeling great. Not only are they run by our friends in the Liberty Movement, Pack Crest Botanicals also uses high quality organic ingredients in everything they make. They sell tinctures, edibles, topicals, and botanical vapes. CBD oil can help with pain, insomnia, inflammation, anxiety, stress, arthritis, and more. Use discount code FREETHEPEOPLE to save 25% of your order. And if you select Free the People as your charitable organization at checkout, a portion of your purchase will be donated to us to help fight for freedom. Yeah. What, what was your reaction? Um, this, maybe I'm overreacting to it, but uh, President Biden, mm -hmm. not that long ago, made this sweeping statement that white supremacy was the biggest threat. <laughs> this, I'm getting the quote right, I think, was the biggest threat to America today. And my initial reaction was, if you're, if you're casting such a wide net that there are so many white supremacists in this country, you're, you're really letting off the hook actual racists who are actually repugnant because apparently we all are. Right. Yeah, and, and my... So I, I think that stuff is abhorrent. Just like when he said, if you don't vote for me, you ain't black. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I constantly remind people that the president of the United States said that <laughs> as, he, well, as he was running for office. That was his sales pitch. Yeah. Um, but I think that if white supremacy is the biggest threat, then I, we don't have a lot of problems in America because I don't see it. I don't see the, the turmoil, the white supremacy that's going on. Maybe if, you're on, if you live on Twitter you know, where some of the craziest, most uh, political people exist, maybe you might see it. 
um, and I've seen it. Uh, but Twitter is in real life. Right. You know, when you go outside, you meet your neighbors. Uh, when you interact with people, you go to a store, people who wait on you, serve on you, take you places, your Uber drivers, everybody's pretty cordial. Yeah. You know, and the, the thing for me, and, and, and I tried to use this as like a reference for the book, I've lived in five states in my life. I've lived in four states before the age of 18. I've lived in urban, rural, and suburban areas. So I've been around white people my entire life. I've been in racially mixed areas. I've been in everything. Most people live in one area and have seen one particular thing. And they see America as wherever they live. I've been all over, on top of me traveling into other countries. So my perspective is wider than I think most people. So my perspective as an American seeing other Americans is that they're just people. Yeah. And, you know, and if you allow them the opportunity to do really nice things for you, you come down south, you see the southern hospitality, uh, you know, they go above and beyond. So, I mean, they're just people. They're complex, but they're people and generally good. Yeah. And as long as you're respectful to them, generally speaking, they're respectful to you. Um, and, you know, some people are jerks. That's life. You can't avoid that completely. But the, the number of, like, negative outward hateful things that have happened to me in person, not Twitter, <laughs> that's a different space, but in person, I can count on one hand. Yeah. So I, I, I used to say a similar thing um, because my wife and I will spend um, a decent amount of time speaking internationally and we've mm -hmm. gotten to, to mix it up in, in a bunch of different cultures. And until recently, I used to say to people that thought that, that America was this horrible racist place, um, in my experience, we're the most colorblind, most tolerant nation that I've ever been to because everybody else has, has class and class is often associated with color and caste and all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I don't, I'm not sure I feel that anymore because, and again, this, this period you're talking about, I feel like they've beaten it into us that we, we have to care about skin color and, and that, yeah. that there has to be a clash, there's a divide, there's a fight going on. And if you're not in the fight, you're part of the problem. Well, I think there is more of a clash than there was before, but I think the clash that I'm seeing are the people who are pushing back. Um, I think with COVID, uh, you know, the pandemic and lockdowns and massing kids, all these different things, uh, like organizations like Moms for Liberty. Uh, I was just at their conference a couple of weeks ago and I'm just talking to these people, they're just moms. Yeah. They got activated when they started doing things to their kids. Yeah. Then they became activists, right? But they were, they're normies. They're just regular people, probably not even the most political people that you'll ever meet. But they just care about their kids. And they activated normal people, and they're pushing back. And that's why they go so hard after that particular organization, because they know that these, are, these aren't ideologues. They're not Trumpers. They're not, they're not those type of people. And the media was there. I, I saw them, and they interviewed some of these people. They know that they're regular women, that are there and and the founders are empowering regular people to do something that they don't even feel comfortable doing and when the normies start speaking up and pushing back that's when you start seeing the upper class and the media the upper class and the government start to call them names white supremacists yeah. you know if you go to your school board you're a white supremacist um, you're a terrorist or a domestic terrorist that's what they like to say now yeah. so you have when when you see the clash to me the clash is when the normies, the middle class, the working class starts to become aware that the upper class is trying to indoctrinate their kids, slandering them when they try to push back, then they get really pissed off. So they've, they've 
awaken a, a sleeping giant when it comes to regular people who don't actually want to be involved in politics. All they want to do is go to work, take care of their family, and live their life. Yeah. They're, so the I've only started paying attention to the Moms for Liberty, and my theory is that they, they're sort of the the grassroots and intellectual um, um, inheritors of, of what started the Tea Party movement. So hmm. you don't know much about me, but I was a Tea Party organizer um, 10, 12 years ago, whenever it was. And so many of those leaders were moms hmm. that were just pissed off. Like they, they had never done politics before. It's exactly the story you told. No. And it, it became this big thing in 2009. And, and, and mostly moms are organizing these local organizations. It looks exactly like Moms for Liberty. And the response from the other side was, wait for it, domestic terrorist, <laughs> racist, fascist. Well, you know, it's so funny. So that time I was a Democrat. And at that time, I thought I was well-informed and I was watching the news. There was these crazy people who were just hated Obama because he was a black guy. Yeah. You know, so I was like, man, I don't understand these Tea Party people. And every time someone who was a Tea Party um, politician who got elected, he was just cra the craziest people you ever meet. Uh, was, it was it Michelle Bachman was one yeah, of them? Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. They always try to paint her as the craziest person. And, um, you know, it was actually, it's not really associated with the Tea Party, but it just makes me think of this. Uh, Betsy DeVos, when they were having the hearing and she was stumbling over some of the questions, mm -hmm. they always painted her as being a complete idiot. I went to Moms for Liberty's conference last year. They had Betsy DeVos there to speak. I said, this should be interesting because I really don't know much about her. And the only thing I have are these news clippings. And she is very articulate, very meaningful, and she makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And I said, all this makes so much sense. The people who are actually saying the government is screwing up, we shouldn't, she is saying we shouldn't have a Department of Education. That shouldn't even be a thing. When people like that start getting into, uh, into office or when people like that start speaking up, then they slander them. Then they start chopping them down. Yep. And then the media apparatus just goes after them, goes after them. So it's come to the point where the people who are the white supremacists are, are being slandered by the media. Those are the people that I like. Um, and actually, what was very touching was, you know, because I went to the conference a couple of weeks ago, I wrote an article for Newsweek giving my perspective because I was physically there. And I told the story of regular people who are reluctant to do this thing, but they feel the need to do it. And I spoke for them and I got attacked by the left and I don't care yeah. because they've been slandered and having someone give some real honest truth because they know it's true. They know that these are, these are just regular people. These aren't some crazy political people. They know they're just moms. My, my wife went with me, and she, she's not a political person. She met these people. She's like, they're just moms. I'm like, yeah. So you see what's going on. You see the apparatus that's at hand. That's why they go after them so hard, because they're effective. Yeah. They've, they've grown a tremendous amount uh, in just two years. You know, getting every presidential candidate to show up at an event after a couple of years of being in existence, that's a, that's a huge feat. I'm, I'm sure you understand that. Yeah. So I, I, ju I just... It was something over time that I started realizing anytime the media comes together, has a united viewpoint against something, I probably need to pay attention to them. Have you ever thought about using CBD oil? You haven't? Well, think about it now. Are you thinking about it? Good, because now there's a way to support freedom and improve your life at the same time. 
Packcrest Botanicals is a libertarian-owned company that makes a wide variety of botanical CBD products. I use CBD oil to soothe the sore muscles I get from constantly fighting the man here in Washington, D.C. It's a tough job. Somebody's got to do it. Packcrest Botanicals uses high-quality organic ingredients in everything they make. And as libertarians, you won't have to worry about them hurting people or taking their stuff. They sell tinctures, edibles, topicals, and botanical vapes. CBD oil can help with pain, insomnia, inflammation, anxiety, stress, arthritis, and more. Use the discount code FREETHEPEOPLE to save 25% of your order. And if you select Free the People as your charitable organization at checkout, a portion of your purchase will be donated to help us keep fighting for freedom. Yeah, that's a great way to think about it. Um, you've mentioned your book a couple times, yep. and I suspect that I have not read this book yet since I just met you, but I suspect that this sort of chronicles your journey from from a, a Democrat who, who felt like he belonged to a certain tribe to whatever you've become. Tell me a little bit of that story. Well, actually, I don't talk about okay. it. It's And I actually purposely didn't want it to be like a political book. I, I didn't write it in a way that this is a black conservative book. Uh, I talk about race, but underneath it, I talk a lot about family, the mm -hmm. importance of family. And I was kind of answering the question, like, what's the biggest issue facing black Americans? Oh, it's not racism. It's absurd. The biggest issue is uh, family issues, childhood trauma. That's the biggest problem. So quite literally in every sector you, you can think of, when you talk about crime, poverty, the list goes on, family dysfunction is the root of it all the way across. Um, so I, I wanted to use the book to highlight that. I also talk about morality. I talk about a bunch of different things, but I use my personal story growing up without my father, how it impacted me as a kid. Now, granted, I didn't get into crime and drugs or anything like that, but I talk about the mental aspect, what I lacked, you know, growing up to become a man and, you know, and an adult, but I didn't know how to be a man. Um, and I, I also give some behavioral and psychological, uh, psychological analysis as well. Um, and I'm not a psychologist, but I'm highly interested in that field. And I've had psychologists read it and say, yeah, you're on point. So I feel validated in that. <laughs> um, but I, I, I try to stay away from it being a political book. It's not Thomas Sowell's book or anything like that. It's a very personal, very human book. At the end, I have some solutions because I didn't want to just complain. Um, and ultimately, I say that we have more in common than we do different. And the thing that we really share as all Americans, whether you're black, white, Hispanic, is that childhood trauma. Because nearly a quarter of children are growing up in separate homes from their parents. And that is impacting them tremendously. And we're number one in the world in that scenario. So, you know, I tell stories about uh, meeting people. One in particular, a man who's conservative I met while I was writing the book. Uh, actually, just before I started writing the book. And he supported me from day one. Uh, and I actually got to meet him in person. But he's 70, uh, 70 plus years old, a veteran, white, co completely different than me. But the area that we connected was that we both had childhood trauma. He doesn't know who his father was. And he felt lost in the world. He would travel a lot or move a lot to different countries. I, I went through the same thing. And we, we bonded over that. And we still talk to this day about that, that particular pain. And, but he self-medicated with alcohol. And then, you know, he's trying to clean up his life in his 70s and apologize to his children who he wasn't the greatest father with. So, you know, 
I understand his pain, even though we don't look alike, we're not in the same age range, and I'm not a veteran like he is. But we, we understand each other. So I, I think that's the part that I'm trying to show, that we can connect under pain, now how can we resolve it? So the, the solutions that you propose, is it about people taking responsibility again, or do you think that there's policies that, that prevent people from, from taking responsibility? Like, how do you restore the family? For one, you, you have to be able to talk about, like, for example, for me, because I talk about what it was like for me as a child, that should give people pause, right, to make people think twice. I think far too often we have children who grow up in a dysfunctional home. They don't talk about it. They just pretend that everything is fine. You know, I made it and everything is okay. And so we look at children who survived, not children who were raised. And, and that's my situation. I survived single parenthood, but they don't see the years of struggle. They see the, the end product where you finally, you know, thankfully made it out of it, but they don't see that pathway. And as parents, you, you don't recognize that until someone actually says something. But I, I really, truly want this to get into schools. I want this to get into the hands of younger people before they start procreating. I want them to not do what I did because I didn't know better. I had my son out of wedlock. Uh, I didn't follow the order, but now I understand, and my son is 17 now, he knows the order. He knows he used to get married, then have children. He knows to be responsible uh, for himself and how to, how to conduct himself as a man. And he doesn't have to go through the pathway that I did, you know, because I put my son at risk by having him out of wedlock. So I try to talk about these things in very um, common sense ways so people understand that there are ramifications for your choices as parents. And how you, you know, whoever you lay down with, just assume that they might be the parent of your kid. And you need to start seeing the world from that perspective. So you uh, quote my old professor, Walter Williams, in here. And Walter was a force, force of life. He was, he was unstoppable guy. Mm -hmm. The most damage done to black Americans is inflicted by those politicians, civil rights leaders, and academics who assert that every problem confronting blacks is a result of a legacy of slavery and discrimination. That's a vision that guarantees perpetu per perpetuity of the problems. Right, exactly. He was absolutely right about that. Um, and that's something that I had to start realizing as well. You know, the way I kind of see government's involvement when it comes to parenting is that it either hinders it or it does nothing, right? But it doesn't help, right? The government can't make my father be involved in my life. It can't. You can make them pay child support, right? But it can stand in their way when they go to family court and automatically give the kid to the mother and make them jump through hoops and prove that he's a good father. You know, that's where the government can actually hinder. So I, the, the way I kind of see it is from kind of a libertarian perspective, the government needs to do less when it comes to families and then it needs to allow families to flourish because I've met so many people. I was actually, maybe just think about this. I was in London. We just took an Uber and the guy was talking and he's fighting to see his kids with his ex-wife. He's driving an Uber and he has another job and he's doing all these things. She, but the courts default believe her. And this is in the UK. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's that kind of thing. You see all these men who are trying so hard to be involved in their kids' lives, but you have the government involved, the government saying, well, prove that you're a good father. Oh, no, she's fine. She doesn't have to prove anything, right? It's, you know, they're guilty until proven innocent when it comes to their children. And that's, 
that's where I'm like, the government needs to do less. They need to, to step away and allow people to, to dictate their lives and dictate how they parent the kids. So this book, uh, Black Victim to Black Victor, uh, this has been out for how long? I published it in 2021. Okay. And what was the reception? You said that, that some people hate you on Twitter. <laughs> I can wildly guess who those people might be. Well, you know, it's funny. I don't get the hate that people assume that I do, but I do get some hate. Uh, everybody gets some sort of hate, and that's, that's what comes with it. But I actually get more love, far more love, you know, because I'm talking about things that are relatable. You know, the, the family issue, it doesn't matter if you're Democrat or Republican, so you can't attack me for saying that we should care about childhood trauma. Well, Democrats do, right? Maybe not the leftist progressives. They don't really matter to me. And they're far and few in between. But I'm talking about things that are highly relatable. I'm talking about people. Uh, I'm talking about human issues. And not everything to me is a political issue. You know, how good of a father or good of a mother you are has nothing to do with what some politician in D.C. does. That's up to you. Uh, your, de- your choices, your decisions, and how you decide to impact your family. So I don't really, I don't really get that much hate, uh, but I welcome it because it really doesn't matter. They'll, they'll forget in 24 hours. <laughs> well, well uh, probably a better question is where are you getting love? Like who's, who's responding to this? I mean, I think it's a very compelling message. I, I find it both essential mm-hmm. and, and sort of obvious um, in the most essential truths probably are obvious when people see them you know i've gotten love everywhere um from people who've worked in juvie psychologists uh regular people uh people who are now adults but when they were kids they were molested they told me their stories um you know i've had viral tweets go uh, actually my first viral tweet was talking about my father not being in my life and that you know just it just flooded with DMs and emails from people talking about their story. Fathers saying, I'm trying my best to be involved in my kid's life. It was very, very emotional, especially because I was new to Twitter. Yeah. Um, and taking in all these stories. So, I mean, I, I, hear, I hear people's pain and I hear people's praises when it comes to my book and how it impacted them. Um, you know, just random people. Sometimes not on Twitter. Sometimes I just get emails. Like, someone told me about your book. It was wonderful. Um, you know, I went to Moms for Liberty. People have bought my book from the previous year, and they told me how much it impacted them. People have cried, told me they cried, um, you know, and, and also uh, other countries as well, especially in the UK, where it impacted them. They, they understood what I was trying to say. So the love has been there. Um, and I tried to take a lot of the, the messaging about the importance of family and put it into my articles. Uh, one of the bigger ones that I wrote was about the Uvalde shooter and how his mental health was already on the decline. It was on a thread. But COVID happened, and his father couldn't come around anymore. Yeah. And I wanted to talk about the impact of the fathers when it comes to their children and how that led for him to go into that decline and, and commit the heinous act that he, did, he committed. So that, that particular article really touched the nerve with a lot of people and letters to the editor and all, all these people. So I've, I just had regular people advocate for me and they appreciate me being so open and honest about my story and about their story as well. At Kibbe on Liberty, freedom is a lifestyle 24-7, something you live and breathe and wear every day. If that describes you, you need the very best Liberty swag in the market today. Just like this shirt I happen to be wearing. Go to freethepeople.org slash KOL and check out our exciting merch. 
you too can love liberty and look cool. Yeah, you mentioned the Uvalde shooter, and and I remember noticing at the time that it was a perfect storm of, of broken family and school lockdowns, right. alienated kid, and 10 other problems. I think his mom was an addict. And, yeah. Um, and I, I might be getting the wrong tortured kid in the wrong uh, school shooting, but the story plays again and again. Have you heard of this guy named Warren Farrell? He, he yes. The boy crisis? Yes. Um, I have had conversations with him, and and I, if you haven't connected with him, I want to connect you with him because he would he would very much uh, appreciate and amplify the kinds of, of stories that, that you're telling. You know, it's, um, I tried reaching out to him. I haven't been able to get in contact with him, but I, I got his book. Um, and I, I was listening to the audiobook at the time I was driving, you know, hours, uh, to, to get to work. And I was listening to his book driving from New York to New Jersey and he would say certain things and it would just make me cry. I, I, I haven't been able to finish it because I was yeah. crying so often because it reminded me of my childhood yeah. and what, how I felt. Then it made me think about my son and what he doesn't have to go through. So it was a very, very emotional thing when I talk about this particular topic, but yeah. Uh, you know, like the rough and tumble play and all these different things, not having that. And I see how it affects me as an adult. Yeah. Um, so it, it's very, I, I actually really appreciate the work that he's done. One of the, one of the most, um, before, um, it's not just censorship, but I, I know there's a lot of censorship now on social media. But I think there's also just uh, pay to play kind of um, revenue models that make it hard for your videos and your tweets to go viral. Maybe mm -hmm. not tweets anymore. Um, but one of our most viral videos was Warren Farrell talking about the eerie similarities between various, um, uh, it's always boys, right? And it's always boys from broken families and it's, it's always boys without fathers that do these, that turn into these horrific monsters. Yeah. Um, and and that was another that was just something that really resonated with people and he's he's part of the i don't know what it's called but the the fatherhood movement or whatever it is um i'll, I'll if you want i'll connect you guys no i'd love to okay cool. yeah so what's next uh, this book is out I, I believe you told me you're working on a new book yes um so this one obviously has race tied into it but i'm working on a book that is absent of race absence of politics um it'll be age appropriate you know, you can put it in a school, it'll be perfectly safe because the topic is about fatherlessness. Yeah. It is 100% about that topic. And it's going to read like a memoir. The way I'm writing it, um, my writing style is a little bit different than how I wrote this, but the way I'm writing it is more poetic. Uh, I do talk about my father within this book, but it's a segment. It's in one particular chapter. But throughout this one, it is how I felt like to the core of me as a child. Um, and all the different experiences that I had, you know, there's some stories that I've, I started talking about uh, in person, but I never put pen to paper. Um, and I thought about putting in this book, but I shied away from it. Um, so I, I have no problem telling you now, but um, some years ago, my sister and I were talking on the phone. She's like, you don't remember that happening? Um, and I'm like, wait, what? And she explained to me, about how when I was six, I went into a mental hospital. And all these memories just started coming back to me. I blocked it out. Um, at the time, I told my mother that I wanted to die. And my version of dying was the, the bed falling on top of me. You know, that's a six-year-old brain. 
Um, she went to a professional. They said to have him admitted. So they put me into a mental hospital. I didn't know where I was going. I didn't know where, exactly where I was until I was actually there. Um, subsequently, I was there for three months. And the way I kind of explain to people, you know, if you commit a crime, you get sentenced. They tell you you're there for a year. So you can count the days until you get out. But when you get admitted for mental health issues, you don't know when you're leaving, right? It's till they say you can leave. And as a six-year-old who's seeing his mother come in to visit, I'm asking her, am I leaving today? And she would have to tell me no. And my sister told me that every time she would go driving home, um, she would cry because she knows that her son is stuck there and, and is without his mother. And I just wanted to go home. And I think that was when I really like uh, worked through that, that situation and started writing about it and talking about it. I realized that that moment was very pivotal for me because it told me that expressing how you feel can get you institutionalized. Yeah. And that's why I've always been very quiet. I've always been really shy, standoffish. And it wasn't until George Floyd and the media saying that you're not allowed to say these things. See, I chose not to be political. I chose not to say anything, kept it to myself. But when they said you're not allowed to say this, and if you do say this, you're a bad person, that's when I decided to finally use my voice and, and say something. Do you have a name for the new book yet? Uh, I have a working title. It's The Children We Left Behind. Okay. And uh, how can people get a hold of you? I mean, obviously, they can find your book, Black Victim to Black Victor, mm -hmm. Adam Coleman. And I assume that's wherever we buy books, right? Yeah. Amazon. Uh, they can go to Amazon, uh, barnesandnoble.com. Or they can go to wrongspeak.net. They can purchase it directly from there if they don't want to give money to Amazon directly. Um, so, yeah, they can find me. You're on Twitter? Yeah, I'm definitely on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> um, at wrong underscore speak. Okay. And uh, wrongspeak publishing is at wrong, at wrongspeak publish. I'm sorry. At wrongspeak pub um, on Twitter. Okay, cool. I'm glad we ran into each other. This has me been too. a cool conversation. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah. I appreciate you. Thanks for watching. If you liked the conversation, make sure to like the video, subscribe, and also ring the bell for notifications. And if you want to know more about Free the People, go to freethepeople.org.